let's start. Um, any any prayers? Any prayers tonight? It's good to see you all, um, and um, it's good to see you online. Um, John, I only see you. I hope I hope your wife's okay. Um, Let's start. Mike, go ahead. I have a, a, a co-worker, an engineer I work with, uh, a young man in his uh, lower 40s, and he's recently had two strokes. He's, he's married, has two children who are high school age, just needs a lot of prayers. Is he home? Yes, he is home. Yeah, his name is Nick. Hold on. Anybody else? <sighs> let's let's start. Is that Michelle? Yes. Michelle, sorry, say it again. Stomach bug. Stomach huh? bug. A stomach bug? <laughs> Okay, let's, let's start. Um, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Sorry, Doc, what? Say. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and um, the gift of yourself always in the Mass. Um, um, today I want to offer special prayers again. It's been a week, but um, special prayers again for um, the churches that are being um, protested and sometimes openly attacked um, because of our stand on abortion. Um, um, watch over the security forces and watch over the people who are doing the protesting. Um, Please do as you can, what you can, to keep these protests from becoming violent, from breaking in on the mass. Um, one of the lines I heard is, um, from the people breaking in was that they wanted to take the Eucharist and burn it. Um, people who don't know mysteries don't know better. For them, it's a piece of bread. Um, it's like the people who saw you who didn't know you were God when you were here. So. Um, forgive us our sins, watch over our churches at this time of protest and be with the Supreme Court. Give the people um, a right sense, a good sense of reason and um, a strength in their faith to um, use all of their powers of reason um, to help our laws be in accord with your own laws. Um, let that be. And I ask a blessing on all families at um, a particularly busy time. Kids are graduating. They're, um, they're going on um, to an older life. Um, so be with our families at this time of graduation. Let it be a good time, even where there's struggles in families. Let it be.
and I ask a blessing on all that we're doing here. Um, whether we were aware of it or not when we began, we're, we're taking up our place with Pope Leo XIII a century ago when he wrote his encyclical asking for um, a recovery of a sound philosophy. An amazing thing. He did it because he knew people were losing their minds. I mean, there's no other way to say it. And with um, John Paul and Benedict. So we're right in the middle of a living tradition. Give us courage, open minds to see what's at stake and give us the courage to take a stand um, and be aware of the example um, that all of these popes have given. They are so clearly aware of the implications of what's going on when so many people are not. Help us in our learning, help us to understand this stuff, and give us the courage to fight for it. Good hearts, good minds, and good faith. Um, ask a special blessing on Nick. Um, watch over him, um, protect him, help the doctors do what they can, um, and let this crisis in his family be an occasion for everybody in his family growing in their faith. Keep him well, keep him safe. If there are unwanted consequences, let it be a time of everybody in the family having their faith, their faith strengthened. Be with Michelle and her family. Let that bug pass. Um, keep all of us well. We offer all of these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, let's let's start. Let's do. Uh, let's pick up with the Dutchland, the wreck of the Dutchland. Um, you know that my habit is not to go into the lyrics when we do them because it's not our focus. Um, but some of these poems really require a, a minute because they're not easy to read. And it's easy to miss a lot in this poem. It's just, it's just so complex. But let me offer this thought before we begin. You know, you know, from the persistence with which I've hit all of you over the head about this stuff, that the lyric has to do, the lyric poem, has to do with the interior. It's different from drama. In drama, the, the poet presents a world objectively, going about their actions, doing what they do, speaking words. The poet renders a world outside of it, objectively. Shakespeare does that in his dramas. Novelists do that. Jane Austen does it when she's describing her characters. But in lyric, hold on. So even in novels, very often the author enters the story because the author, like Jane Austen, speaks in her voice. She'll give a narrative description, let's say if it's Pride and Prejudice. She'll give a description of the characters and the setting. The, I mean, one of the, I'm gonna forget it now, one of the most memorable lines that I can, it's a, it's a truth universally known that every rich man who enters the neighborhood must be in want of a good wife. Boy, if I got that close, I'm doing really well. That's the beginning of Pride and Prejudice. 
It's a truth universally known that a man in possession of a large fortune entering a neighborhood must be in want of a wife, something like that. That's Jane Austen's voice. That's not a character, that's her. So even in novels, there's a lyric mode at work, right? It's through that that we get the story of all these other characters, Elizabeth Bennet, her family, the, okay, for those of you who read Jane Austen. Or, is that clear? So lyric is always an expression of the interior, the inward person, who that person is. So every novel has, generally speaking, novels have that voice because we only get a story through a narrator. In drama, that narrator drops out. There's no narrator in drama, we just get people acting and speaking and doing what they do, okay? But in lyric, we get the poet expressing his own interior life in the poem. Whether it's supernatural love, the woman describing you know, her experiences as a four-year-old girl, or Hopkins in the wind hover, or whatever it is, okay? Wreck of the Dutchland is an ode. It's not thought of as a lyric, but it's lyrical, it's a lyric. Hopkins himself knew that. And in the first part of the Wreck of the Dutchland, it's almost strictly lyrical because he's, a, he's, a, he's expressing his awareness of his place in the world and his own personal struggle with God. Now why does he do that? Because, because what we're going to find out is he himself is going through a struggle while he describes what happens to these nuns. They're all going to die. Right? So it's through his own struggle with God um, that this story of the nun comes to us. So everything that's described is described through a lyrical mode, through him. Yeah? Is that clear? So, it begins, Thou mastering me, thou mastering me, God, giver of breath and bread, world strand, sway. That's Hopkins. He's saying, you master me. You're the, you're the sway of everything, you're in control of it, it's your creation. Thou hast bound bones and veins in me, fastened me flesh, and after it almost unmade, what with dread. When he took his vows, imagine, I'm, I'm, this is just, I'm gonna interrupt the story here. <laughs> you stop. <laughs> um, I've already told some things on myself. I'm not even sure that I should have last week, but when Suzanne and I were married, I, I had left the Greek Orthodox Church. We we were married in her parents' home. It was a private ceremony. We wrote our own vows. It was a minister. It was a, just a minister. Um, it was a civil wedding of sorts. Um, it was a, anyway, we made our vows. Um, we were both deeply committed to our marriage, or we wouldn't have lasted this long. Um, 25 or 30 years later, after our kids, every, we had converted. We came into the Catholic Church. I knew sometime shortly after that marriage we would. I'd read Chesterton's Orthodoxy and my way was settled. Um, but all of our kids were married in the Catholic Church, so we baptized them. Some were baptized in the Greek Orthodox Church because we went back to Christianity, went back through that world, the Orthodox world, but converted finally and our kids were baptized, raised. When they were married, they were married in the Catholic Church. So every one of our children went through a marriage that was a part of the Mass. You cannot, God, you cannot imagine how important that was for me. To see our kids <clears throat> married in the Mass, because it was a part of the sacrifice. I mean, that's how much marriage meant to me and has always meant. Um, that's why I take it so seriously. And Anyway, um, so 
we were teaching at a college. I was teaching at a college on the on, in the New England coastline, and um, something happened there. There was something of a crisis, and and I had spoken to the priest about it. And out of nowhere, I had this inspiration to renew our vows. Out of nowhere, it actually came in a period of real suffering. I don't want to go into it, but it was a it was a period of real struggle with what happened. And asked the priest if we could renew our vows, and he said, "Sure." Um, it was Easter weekend. Our kids were coming to visit us. They always did on the major holidays when we were back east. We got a phone call from our son who had not gone through confirmation. He didn't want to do it when he was younger. He's, I don't know, 22, 24 then. Calling us to let us know he wanted to undergo confirmation. My wife was in tears. I was too. We had already planned to renew our vows. And um, I thought it's Easter weekend that the priest would take us in front of the Mass and we would say a few words and that would be it. After Easter vigil, he said, come the next morning, Sunday morning. We came to the church the next morning. He opened the church for just us and our kids. So it's our four kids and us. And he performed a Mass. Performed a Mass. <laughs> Sorry. You almost be getting used to this. Um, here's why I'm telling the story. So whatever it was 30 years earlier when we said our vows, I didn't feel nervous at all. We were there at the altar, we were saying vows, and my knees were shaking. Shaking. It was connected with the altar, with a, you know, it's Christ. So, so here's Hopkins going Thou hast bound bones and veins in me, fastened me flesh, and after it almost unmade, what with dread thy doing, and dost thou touch me afresh? Hopkins took vows. You can imagine what it had to be like for him, as serious as he was, to take vows. To feel the terror, the, the stark awe and dread that a sensitive priest, because once he takes vows, He's, he's either going to be that much closer to heaven or he's going to be that much closer to going to hell because everything he does is going to be tested. So the short of what I'm saying is in this beginning it's a lyric mode. It's Hopkins um, describing his own personal struggle in an in a ode, in a, in a form that's called an ode, that's a preparation for all that he's going to describe when he gets to the sisters, okay? because he himself is undergoing this struggle. It'll be personal to him. It's what every child does when they're late in high school and their parents disappear every Tuesday evening to go to a class. All, all of us in high school, sometime between high school and go through periods of real questioning. I mean, it's a time of growing up and questioning things. So. He's, he's presenting what's about to happen through his own personal struggles, okay? Let's go to the second part. This is where we left off. Part the second. Sorry. Where's that noise coming from? Part the second. Some find me a sword, 
shouts from the flang on the rail. Flame, fang, or flood goes death on drum, and storms bugle his fame. But we dream we are rooted in earth dust. Flesh falls within sight of us. We, though our flower the same, wave with the meadow, forget that there must the, the sour scythe cringe and the blear share come. Is that clear? The, the grass, the plants will all be cut. Dust to dust, we're all susceptible, we're vulnerable to the winds, the cutting. On Saturday sailed from Bremen, American outward bound, take settler and seamen, tell men with women. 200 souls in the round, O Father, not under thy feathers, nor even as guessing. The goal was a shoal of a fourth a doom to be drowned. A fourth of them died. Yet did the dark side of the bay of thy blessing not vault them, the millions of rounds of thy mercy not receive even them in? Why didn't you shelter them? Why did they have to die? What kind of God, what kind of God is it that would let people who are being persecuted for him die? That's exactly what his son faced. Into the snow she sweeps, hurling the haven behind, all safety behind them now. The Dutchland on Sunday, and so the sky keeps, for the infinite air is unkind, and the sea flint flake, black-backed in the regular blow. Sitting east-northeast in cursed quarter, the wind, wiry and white fury and whirlwind, swiveled snow, spins to the widow-making, the widow-making, unchilding, unfathering deeps. It's going to take everything away. Notice how concrete he is. He wasn't there, right? Is everybody following? That's so real to him. It's like every writer we've ever read. He puts us there. We're with him. We're not in our heads. We're not in abstractions. We're not in abstractions. We're not in ideas. We're in a concrete world with the nuns and the sailors. She drove in the dark to leeward. She struck not a reef or a rock, but the combs of a smother of sand. Night drew her dead to the Kentish knock, and she beat the bank down with her bows and the ride of her keel. The breakers rolled on her beam with ruinous shock, and canvas and compass, the whorl and the wheel idle forever to waft her or wind her with. These she endured. Hope had grown, gray hairs, hope had mourning on, trenchant with tears, carved with cares. Hope was twelve hours gone. They kept waiting for somebody to help. Imagine how that intensified the stress. Imagine. I mean, if you're in a situation, you can't escape it, and you're hoping for somebody, and you wait and wait and wait. Minute after minute, hour after hour passes. No help. It just intensifies the agony. Trenched with tears, carved with cares, hope was twelve hours gone, and frightful a nightfall, folded, rueful a day. Nor rescue, only rocket and light ship shone, and lives at last were washing away to the shrouds they took. They shook in the hurling and horrible airs. One last stanza and we'll stop. One stirred from the rigging to save the wild woman, kind below with the rope's end round the man, handy and brave. He was pitched to his death at a blow. One of the sailors came out to help the women, to help. The gesture of helping took him away. He was pitched to his death at a blow, for all his dreadnought breast 
and braids, that is all the signs of courage in a man, braids of through, they could tell him for hours. Now watch these words. His death at a blow for all his dreadnought breast and braids of through, they could tell him for hours, dandled the to and fro through the cobbled foam fleece. He's on the rigging, tied to a rope, dangling, being knocked about by the buffeting by the wind. So he goes to help and he's killed, but his suffering is prolonged because he's being dashed about by the winds, okay? They could tell him for hours, dandled the to and fro through the cobbled foam fleece. What could he do with the burl of the fountains of air, buck, and the flood of the wave? I'm just going to take one more second here because I love this. What do you usually associate the word dandled with? A baby. A baby. Yeah? Fathers dandle kids on their knees. That's my... I don't think mothers do it as much as fathers. Fathers dandle kids. It's a male, somebody brusque and big, dandling a kid on a, you know. What does it do? What does that word do for that stanza? Are you all picturing it? This guy's dying. He's getting knocked about in the rigging. The verb to describe what's happening is dandling. They could tell him for hours, dandled the to and fro through the cobbled foam fleece. What could he do with the burl of... What? Any response to that world dandle? What does that do for the stanza or even the poem? Hanging by a rope, too. Yeah, that he's brushing against it constantly, and the wind is coming, and the, everything's caressing him. I don't know about caressing. Well, <laughs> dandling him. Dandling. What? Yeah, go ahead. State, yeah. Why, why does he use... He, Hopkins is a master. I mean, he's careful about words. Why would he use a word like that here? I mean, follow up, just Karen. It's just with what you're saying. Well, that's what, dandling is a new word to me, but I assume it's playing and jostling back. Usually it's a father bumping a kid on a knee, you know, just, yeah. So, talking about uh, fathers up there and all that, and the sea is kind of cruelly playing with this child. <laughs> I mean, what's the Yeah. I mean, that's not dandling, but. Right. Talk, go ahead. Did you say? Did you speak up? Can everybody hear me? Can you speak up? Because there's. <clears throat> or since he's made such a point that the storm is the source of the storm is God. Well, not the source, but he allows it, and God allows these. And um, and so to think of him being dandled may be a reference to. It may seem rough, and he died, but God's there, you said, caressing him. Pretty tough caress. But I think so. You are following? Because remember in the beginning, thou mastering me, the sway, the strength. He, God's in control. And it's not an accident that he uses that word, Donald. It's his way of reminding us that no matter how violent, um, we are all in God's hands. So from what what from our perspective may seem violent isn't always the way God sees it or or there's another way of seeing it to hold on to 
And I think he keeps that alive in the poem by a word like that in a, in a moment like this, okay? Any, any more comments before we leave this? To, um, do you read poetry? Are you homeschooled? I want to get you alone sometime by yourself when your mom's not around. I want to hear about the curriculum there. <laughs> there better be a large space for lyric poetry. Hey, sorry? That one. Have you read anything of Hopkins? I don't think so. Mm, then I'm going to have a serious talk with your mom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm here. Go. And verse number 10. Yeah. Where it says, at once at a crash call for as Austin. I figured Paul was called from. Verse 10? As once at a crash, Paul, or as Austin Lee. Go ahead. I figured Paul was Paul from the Bible because he was in shipwrecks. Right. But who's Austin? I'm not. It, I'm assuming it's another saint, but I'm. It's. I'm no. I don't. And I. You know. I don't know. It. I don't know. I should look this up. It may be an, an allusion to Augustine, another name. I don't know, but it's. I, I'm sure it's a saint. Okay. Can anybody else call to mind anything involving Paul that would be appropriate here? Or rather, rather than stealing his spring through him, melt him, but master him still. With an, remember, with an anvil ding and with fire in him forth, that is, God is... God, actually, we, we, we came across this with one of the poems by John Donne where he's describing himself on an anvil with God, hammering him out. By the way, I hope that's clear. I mean, if we think of ourselves as nice, docile, open, receptive souls, all of that language would be good, but if we're stubborn and hard-hearted and not always open the way we should, I don't know that we should be complaining about God if things get sort of rough in our lives. Um, but all of these images of God working on them, through him, melt him, but, mas mas but master him still. Whether at once, as once at a crash, Paul, or as Austin, a lingering out sweet skill, make mercy in all of us. Is there any other, can anybody make any other connection to Paul? Why who would use Paul here? Or in, in any scenes in which Paul comes to mind? When he, he shipwrecked, I think, off the Isle of Malta, and this, he was washed up on shore, and the natives came out, and then the snake came to bite him. Wow. And then they realized that he was holy or... Protected, um, yeah. But, yeah. There was something about him. Yeah. Anybody else? Can you speak up? The road to Damascus where God basically... Yeah. Flesh that out some, can you? Just... Can everybody hear? Can you hear? It's speaking up. He's on the road to Damascus, church, and God basically appears to him. Knocks him off the horse. Yes. Yeah. So he's yeah. Persecuting me. Right. Right. Yeah, and it was a great mercy for him because it changed. It turned his life around, and he he brought a mercy to everything that he did afterwards. You know, he, Paul was tough. He he um, excommunicated people in some of the communities. It's not like he was this washover. He was 
He was a Christian, but he brought a mercy to what he did they didn't have when he was younger. Um, okay, let's 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 look at Benedict. Just a couple of um, brief comments to begin with. Last week, I made a point of recalling our use of still point. It was a term that um, those of you who have been doing the literature would know because it was a central image for Boethius in the Constellation of Philosophy. It was that point at the center of a circle, remember, the closer to which you got, um, the more you began to see things like God in terms of eternity, not earthly things. The more you were on the circumference, the more tossed about you were, like the people in the ship, the more tossed about, the more subject, um, the more subject to the, 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 the caprice of fortune, whatever chance would present. Um, we use that term, still point. It's one we use since still, or I mean since Boethius. Um, I just want to take advantage of the opening here. Boethius's use of still point is exactly like Benedict's use of logos. There is this logos everywhere in nature. You all got the piece I sent you? The piece of literature, that I, that section from my own chapter? I, I sent it last week. There's a two or three page excerpt from a chapter in, in which I'm referring to T.S. Eliot's use of still point, but in the context of Boethius. And I, if, you, if you didn't read it, you should, because it would be, it would be, I think it would be really helpful for you to see what these people are doing with it. But um, remember, I made the, um, I was making the assertion, making the claim last week that that still point is really important, that every good work of art assumes it. If you look at a work of art, how do you explain the fact that all the parts fit coherently into a design, unless they're united by some still point? Even if you don't see it, it's there, or you can't explain it. Good critics, when they're describing, explaining a work of art, in their efforts to do it, they'll, they'll give a theme and say the, work of, the theme of the work is this, whatever it is. When they do that, they're getting close to the central intuition of that work. It's an attempt to explain what the major theme of the work is. Everybody struggles to get to that still point. Benedict's use of logos is synonymous with that. There is a logos everywhere in nature. We're going to get to um, Benedict in a minute, but I just wanted to call that to mind. That wasn't accidental. Um, keep in mind the different images that people use to describe this sense that there is an order to everything in the universe. Remember when we read Hopkins, um, the wind hover or Kingfisher's catch flyer. Everything speaks, everything means. So there's a logos present in a leaf, in the order of a leaf, a tree, an animal, whatever it is. There's an order or purpose that it couldn't have the existence that it does. God's being, Christ's mark, is on everything in creation. The Trinity is present in some way. Okay? So hold on to that. The other was, remember Paul's constant urging that um, we, we do all that we can um, particularly when we're facing hardships, um, to keep a sense of humor, to keep a joy, 
um, knowing that God is bringing some good. The dandling image is perfect. Even when things seem awful, um, our faith gives us a different way of looking at it from the way most people would look at things. We should be able to see a meaning in something, know that something more is going on and struggle to find it. Um, and remember I gave you that quote from Dostoevsky, it's from the Brothers Karamazov. Take God out of the picture, say there is no God, everything's permissible. There's no reason not to do anything. The laws are just human laws and if they're human laws they can be broken. Men in power can break them and have people killed. Machiavelli, the ends justify the means. Human beings can be looked at as expedients to get rid of. Um, I've got to get rid of this person or it's okay to let this person die. It's one thing to send soldiers into battle knowing they're going to die. Churchill did that and what he did at Dunkirk ended up saving the war. It was a major turning point in the war. He knew people were going to die. There's a difference between knowing Facing a hard decision where you don't want to do it, but you have to do it. There's a difference between that and somebody who neglects soldiers at war and lets them die from a stupid arrogance or neglect. There's a big difference between those two cases. So if God is dead, then everything's permissible. People can do whatever they're going to do and they can justify it. Um, the ends justify the means. People in politics can justify the death of lies because it, in their mind it protects the whole. Look how good I am, you know. So um, we've got to keep in mind some of these larger, deeper things as we go about our work. Um, okay, I want to get to this last um, topic. We went through all the disorders, or most of the major disorders in the world. I'm not going to name them now, we've gone over them before, relativism, eclecticism, pragmatism, all of those, materialism. The last one that we took up had to do with love. Sexual attitudes, our sexual being. And I want to make, um, I want to make a, a general statement to that effect now that we've done it to make something clear. Because I think you all know this from me by now anyway. Um, I've said before, pretty seriously, that I think almost every one of the major disorders in our modern world um, attack marriages, almost every one of them. Whether, whether people make that connection or not, almost every major disorder goes to what t takes place between a man and a woman in our world, sexually that, because of two things. Now, here's, here's where I want to put my emphasis tonight. The claim that I want to make tonight, we've been looking at disorders that are largely intellectual, yeah? Philosophies, um, um, relativism, materialism, eclecticism, pragmatism, immanentism, scientism, yeah? Immanentism. Every one of those um, names refers to a certain philosophy, a way, a way of being, okay? And the contention of John Paul, and it's certainly been my contention, is every one of them represents a disorder of the mind. The human intellect is, is creating this philosophy and it presents itself as being a help to human beings. And the argument we've been making all along is that as, as a matter of fact, it doesn't help human beings, and in fact, it enslaves them. It's, it's, it's presented as a 
as a philosophy of life, a way to be, but as a matter of fact, every one of those philosophies has some flaw in it. Can we see it? My contention has been, if we don't see it, we're subject to it. How can we answer it? We're affected by it. And if we don't see it, we don't even know it. And if somebody else, and we do see it, and, and we're dealing with somebody in a discussion, can we answer it? Can we use reason to help see through that disorder, to see that there's something wrong with it? Yeah? Every one of the disorders has been intellectual. The last one we looked at had to do not with the intellect primarily, but with the will. What men and women do with their wills, with that. So the contention I want to make tonight is that all of the disorders are aimed at those two faculties by which we resemble God. God made us in his image. God has an intellect and a will. He's wise, he has wisdom, he knows, and he wills, he loves. So the two principal qualities by which we know God, the intellect and will, are those two qualities that define man and distinguish man from everything else in creation. Yes, the intellect and the will. And both of those are under attack today. The intellect and the will. In all the intellectual philosophies and now the will in sexual matters. In, that is in matters of love. And the question that I put to everybody a couple weeks ago is, when you're with somebody who says, um, don't tell me what to do with matters of love. The love that I have for this person is, you have no business telling me. That's where we went, right? Because if it's love, who are you to say? The, under, the assumption is love by itself is good. Leave me alone or leave us alone. That's where we were, okay? If I said that clearly enough, I just want to get us back to where we were, okay? Is everybody clear? The intellect and the human will are at stake, at risk. Those two qualities um, by which we most resemble God, our minds, our wills, our capacity to know the truth, our capacity to love, okay? So the question that I left everybody with and then we came back <laughs> after clearing the hall after a good while we left and we picked it up. And if I can go through the steps just to save time tonight, the, the next step is if somebody takes the position that love by itself is inherently good, I was raising the question, because I'm trying to go through this the way I would hope you would go through this, raising questions in a discussion. But if we look around our world, we see that love isn't always good. That as a matter of fact, the cause of most disorders, most evils in the world, is love. We got that, for those of you who have been doing this, we got that from Dante at the center of our church. God made nothing bad. Nothing bad. There's nothing evil about God. Our God is a good God. Boethius, God is doing everything he can to take good out of, to make good out of evil, to bring, to help us, to protect our free wills, so that work with us in a way to bring good out of the evil that we do. So good love, this is Virgil and Dante in the, cent in the very, very center of the divine comedy, in the center of the purgatorio, inferno, purgatorio, paradiso. At the center of that work is Virgil's discourse on love. He's a pagan. 
he's giving a position um, um, that's the fruit of natural reason, not faith. A pagan could understand that because it's natural. natural. Natural reason can come to that conclusion. If you look around at love, love by nature is good. Dante's argument, the Catholic Church's argument is love is inherently good. Love by nature is good. It's only what we do with it, with our minds, that it gets screwed up. That's Virgil. So, natural love is never wrong. Never wrong. Set that against the Protestant view that natural love is inherently depraved. Because for the Protestant, the fall was complete. The consequences of the fall were complete. We fell. We, we became depraved, in essence. The Catholic says, no, that's not true. So when a Protestant is making an argument that things are inherently bad, I mean, a Catholic should be saying, but what about? You know, there's another way of seeing this. So the question to ask then is, but love um, is the cause of so many bad things. We know that. I mean, we watch movies in which um, people, a person will love another person and commit murder to protect that love or do other things or steal. A person, you know, I remember Breaking Bad, it just, I mean, it was such a giveaway. A, a person's facing a possible death, he goes to steal money because his justification is, I can't afford an operation. If I don't do this, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna lose my family. I mean, human beings can do lots of things to justify, on the surface, really good things. If you're gonna have an operation, you can't pay for it, rob a bank, steal some. So love is behind lots of bad things, yeah? So the question then becomes, if what we're faced with are disordered loves, that our loves are not always good, to what do we refer to order them? St. Augustine's term, God, God, I get just so stiff standing there, is, sorry, God, getting harder and harder for me, sorry. Augustine's term is ordo amoris, ordered emotions, ordered loves. The great task facing every one of us, teenagers, parents, all of us, people getting close to the end of our lives, some of you are too young to know that, um, how to order our emotions, how to order our emotions, what are we doing to make our emotions good? That is to make our emotions virtuous. And the other term to keep in mind in connection with this, remember John Paul used it, um, right reason, correct reason. That was early on in Fide Ratio. We went over that term. Rectified, corrected reason, right reason. How many Everybody in the world has reasons for what they do. Nobody lacks reasons for what they do. No matter what they're doing, they're always going to have reasons. Listen to the arguments going on in the political debates today. People on either side are not going to lack reasons. They're always going to have But are the expressions, are they expressions of a virtuous will? Is the way they use reasons, reason a reflection of a good will? That is, or emotions well ordered. 
it makes me sick to watch movies about teenagers when the assumption is teenagers inherently bad. They're going to be rebellious, defiant. Of course they are. I, I myself don't agree with that. I, I never have. Um, that, that to me is a purely modern and I think a Protestant thing because if you begin with the idea that everybody's depraved, then of course you're going to be depraved when you're reaching adolescence and you go into adulthood. That, that's not a given. That's not a necessity. The church, the church's understanding is we start with this goodness, inherent goodness. Can we do everything we can to cultivate that goodness? That was Dante's argument, the center of the Divine Comedy. To curb a child, to help it learn to love what it should and hate what it should. To help develop so that when reason comes, that's Dante's argument, and C.S. Lewis is going to make the same argument in a week. When reason comes, a young person will know what to do. Um, set that against modern philosophies of raising kids. So the serious question becomes, if love by itself is not always good, how do we order it? Against what do we set it? To what do we refer? Is that clear? If, if, the, if loves have to be made lawful, right, because they can be lawless, to what laws do we refer to make our loves good? I've got to be clear here. I hope everybody's clear. Yeah? If our loves are disordered, how do we order them? By what law? So the question then becomes, do we use as our reference point the laws of man? Because anybody who doesn't believe in God is going to refer to the laws of man. Here are laws, put them there. How reliable are they always? Lots of times they are. I mean, good lawmakers good law, make good laws. But we also know they make bad laws. Slavery was not a good law. We went to war over it. We've got laws today that we follow today that I think are inhuman. So the question becomes, to what do we turn to help order our loves? Okay? Yeah, start. Because that's straight from God. But then Christ comes into it to complicate. So I'm, I'm here, I want to see if I can jump ahead now. So, we either, we either obey man's laws or God's laws. And I already gave you that scheme. Are, are the laws on the book a reflection of natural law? Right? The natural law tradition? Because natural law should be in accord with divine law. So laws on the books that are not in accord to natural law are not in accord with God's law, which means at some point there's going to be violence. When our laws are up, Plato made that argument. If political regimes do not conform to the nature of the soul, they're going to create problems. If they make bad laws that are contrary to the nature of our soul, what's going to happen? Something in the soul is going to rise up, right? Because it's just going to make everybody miserable. All sorts of problems will follow from that. So that for me is the next level. <laughs> Sorry to go, but I want to get this short. I'm, I'm cutting short discussion tonight because I want to see if I can structure this argument for everybody. What's the point of, those divine, of that divine law? Christ already made it clear. He came in obedience to his Father. Everything he did was in accord. That's in the readings this last week. In me you see the Father, I'm here to do my Father's will. Did Christ do anything in his life to abrogate his Father's will? 
would he hand it on to Moses? He did not. When he violated the laws, he, you know, when, when the Pharisees are getting angry at him, he's not violating his father's commandments because he would never do that. What he's doing is going against all those accretions that the Jewish tradition set up. Can you imagine Christ who is indwelling with his father ever doing anything to oppose his father's law? So the ultimate end is not just law, the law of the father, it's also the indwelling love between them. So the question to ask is, by what laws are you trying to order your loves? If they're self-interested or everything I'm doing is for the sake of my political regime, that may be a noble end. I'm not what I'm doing, uh, some, somebody who's homosexual or a lesbian can be taking the position that everything they're doing is for the good of the state. I mean, then it goes. Is, is that love a love of caritas? Or what was the other word the, besides agape? Agape, yeah. Is that an agape love? Is that completely self-serving? Or in serving other people, are you indirectly serving yourself without knowing it? I'm putting all these in the form of a question to try to keep a discussion alive. But the ultimate end for a Catholic should be a, a marriage for most of the Protestant world is not a sacrament. Not, with, not under Luther, not under Calvin. It's a civil ceremony. It's not a sacrament. That sacrament was removed. So in, in, in matrimony in those forms are not going to a condition of indwelling or holiness. It's going to some, you can separate. If you reach a point where you don't like what your partner's or your husband or wife's doing, you can leave. In the Catholic Church, it's harder. It's not that you can't. There, uh, um, um, a dissolution, a annulment can take place. But the church is really guarded about that. It's got to be careful. So the point I'm making is the ultimate end for human love as Christ presents it. This is Christ in the Gospels and I quoted that passage at the end of Revelation. Revelation ends, it ends with Christ calling to his bride, the church. His bride, come, come. The bride answers back, come. That the love that we're called to is spousal. It's indwelling for us to become one in each other. How many couples today struggle? I mean, really struggle. That means calling each other. That, that means it's going to make for difficulty sometimes. Because not all husbands are open and receptive. Not all wives are. Yeah? So this whole thing about love conceals all sorts of levels of problems. But at least according to our faith, we should have some sense of what's going on. So when somebody says, who are you to tell me? You know, we should not be taking a, a, um, an approach of self-righteousness, how bad you are, Paul would not do that. Benedict, who we're going to get to in just a second, Benedict does not do that when he's calling to task half of the Christian and Muslim world. His, his tone is absolutely charitable. And he's dealing, he's dealing with a question of war. So we're asked not to be self-righteous. We're asked to bring um, a, a love that's not self-righteous. But 
we're also asked to follow a law to make our to bring ourselves in conformity with Christ so the question is when we attempt to order our loves are we bringing our loves into accord with Christ in what he did in obedience to love or are we following another love that makes it easier for us to go around now I think that's as brief as I can put it let me stop Connie are you um, I'm going to come to you in a second, sorry, but I've had you on my mind. Um, I want to take a little bit to open this up because I, I know that this is a touchy problem. Let me, let me recall the examples that I gave you last week, um, if I can. Um, we know a deacon in recent experiences here in the area whose child, son or daughter, I don't, was homosexual. And the deacon um, did not go to the, the marriage. Um, we know a young or middle-aged black couple, wonderful couple, whose son is homosexual. They did not go to the marriage. You can imagine that was not an easy thing to do. Um, we've got friends, I gave you this example, dear friends back in the Bay Area in California, I told you that the, I, I don't want to name names right now because I want to be really careful. Um, these people were in positions of leadership establishing a Catholic, an Orthodox group in the middle of a university when the university was going way leftward under liberal um, liberation theology, Marxist theology. And they were all fighters. All of them were, I mean, all good men, really good men. Courageous, brave, courteous, respectful, humorous. Two of the men traded wives. You know? Um, and the one man said that against himself, it's something he didn't want to do. He said, We're sorry, we can't have you in our home anymore. I mean, what he was doing was trying to take a stand with people who had been his friends in a fight for years. We were close friends with a couple. Our kids were raised in California with close friends. This is before we came into the church. We converted. They were cradle Catholics. I mean, the guy, the husband, was as steeped in Catholicism, and the wife, they grew up that way. You know that that's not the way Suzanne and I grew I mean, we came outside of the church into the church. His youngest daughter moved in with a guy, and they lived together for 10 years. I think I, I, don't know if, I, think I told you this last week. And the guy came to him a year or two ago and apologized and, and asked for his daughter's hand in marriage. He felt such regret. The husband, the dear friend of ours, I think was in tears. I mean, you know. And I told you, I mean, it was a personal confessional moment. Suzanne and I lived together for years before we were married. I mean, and, and, and hold on to try to be careful because I don't want to be tempting anybody here. Um, we were not in the church then. I mean, I, I, the re, one of the reasons we didn't is because I, I had such an esteem for marriage because I, given my background, that isn't what went on and I don't want to go into the... But I didn't believe that marriage was supposed to be entered into and broken in the way that it had been over so many times in my own childhood. So for me, it was like a way of saying, when you get married, that's it. It can't be just this because I'd experienced too many separations and divorces. Um, and Suzanne's mom came to us one day at our house and said, I don't know how many years we were together by that time, but she said, um, 
she didn't love us less. And she's one of the dearest women I've ever met in my life. But she said, I can't come to your house anymore. You'll be welcome to my house anytime, but I can't come to yours. That she would have set that line, and I, it had to have been hard for her. Here's my question. In every one of these instances that I'm talking about, we're dealing with human weaknesses. I believe all of us have them. What would have happened in any of those cases if somebody had not been there to say, here's the ground? If you take that ground away and say, no, you can't do this, or I can't come to the marriage, or you can't come to my house, or I can't come to your house. If you take away the ground, on what do they fall back on? If there's nothing there, is everybody following? Take that away. And it just gets easier for everybody to keep doing what they're doing. There's no law. Our, any connection between us and human law, our natural law, is gone. So it's my way of trying to say, one of the challenges we face is trying to find a way to hold on to a law while we love. Take that law away to what do people turn? What do they fall back on if there's nothing there? Is that clear? Bob, you look puzzled. Uh, Come on. When you say fall back on something, okay, they don't have anything to fall back on. So now, like you said, when your mother-in-law says, well, I mean, you can't, not coming to your house anymore. Now that could create a big rip. Right. It didn't, but it could, yes. Well, but it could. And then, then right. it's like, okay, now what do you do? It's just like, uh, let's say, Somebody come, uh, I have a son that's living with somebody, and if he comes to my house, do well, I say, you can't stay here? <laughs> then they just go to a motel, and yeah. then, then again, then it's a thought, well, what's the difference? You know, and if he's a, so other than, I think if they're there, then he can still have the conversation. But, yeah. So I, I, don't, I don't know what that answer is. I know it's, yeah. very, it's very and, difficult. I struggle with myself and all that. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, that's why I'm. I, I know how difficult this is, um, and I knew it would be risky going into it, but I, I'm glad to do it. But let me go back to your opening response. By falling back on, on, on what do you fall, what do you know, is if she had not been there, there, she drew a line and said, we can't. Even if it wasn't a physical line, I mean it was geographic, she wasn't going to come to our house, so there was a boundary set. But it wasn't just physical, it was spiritual, it was moral, it was saying, what you're doing is not good, I can't support it. So she opened her house to us and said, I can't visit you. What I'm saying is that was a ground. If she had taken that away, we would have gone on doing what we did. There was no ground there to fall back on. For her to do that meant we could fall back there, because it's a way of saying, I can't do that, or I lose that, that ground's gone. You, then you, it's, it's Alice in the hole, you just keep falling. What I'm saying is there's a natural law. Now wait, I hope everybody's hearing because I'm trying to be as careful as I can. I'm not proposing anything for you guys, but I, well, except the struggle for us, and I'm saying this much with conviction, the struggle for all of us is to hold on to law and love because today they get separated. If you, if you enforce a law by itself, it's cruel and harsh. Almost, and men are more inclined to do that than women. If you give in to... Um, a pity or compassion or tolerance and the law is gone. You've got enabling. 
we've talked about this numerous times in the last couple of years. We, with Dante, we couldn't, you couldn't go anywhere in Dante and not see it. The great struggle of bringing the two of them together. The people in purgatory are not different from the people in hell except in one respect. Every one of the people in purgatory, the homosexuals at the top, they're closest to love. Remember the hierarchy, pride, envy, anger, sloth, av avarice, gluttony, lust. Lust is where it is because it's the next closest thing to love. And in um, being a homosexual doesn't damn you. All the people in that level, there were two circles. One of them was heterosexual lovers, married couples, who, who carried disorders with them. Marriage doesn't mean you're, you, don't have, you, have to, you don't have to keep struggling to become better. And the other circle was homosexual loves. And they had to, remember there was a fire there. They had to keep going or they'd get burnt or fall off. And they had to give quick kisses because they couldn't indulge themselves. Dante's really clear. There's nobody there who's not in sin. The difference is the people there acknowledge their sins. The people in hell don't. If we don't take stands to try to help clarify the, our sense of our own weaknesses, how are we helping other people? If we love them, can we do that? Those are, I mean, those are serious questions I'm asking. If it's a Catholic love, if this is Christ love, if in fact that's what we're trying to do, we've got to try to bring both of those things together. Let me stop there. Um, Melody, John, Lori, any of you, Connie, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna um, ask you, but if you'll hold off for a minute because I wanna give everybody else a chance. Connie wrote me a letter today um, saying she couldn't be here, um, so I'm missing your physical presence, but um, any of you wanna offer any thoughts? Connie, if you can just hold off for a second. Um, any questions or comments, you guys online? Or anybody here? Kay, did you have something? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I take it from this and I... Can you speak agree. up? I take it from this and I agree that how important it is for us to live in accordance with the natural law. And I thank you. Living our lives according to the Ten Commandments, which is, is to me, it's natural law, those Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, it becomes like Dostoevsky's, if God is dead, all things are permissible. It means everything is okay, which is not. Yeah. But a lot of people mistake that. Yes, yes. Let me just follow that up for a second if I can. Bless your soul. Okay. Um, where's it going? Um, natural law is not, um, was not just revealed to us through Moses, or God, sorry, God to Moses in the burning bush where he identified himself and gave his laws. Remember the example I gave you? Uh, well, some of you wouldn't have been here, but those of you who have been here, Remember the example I gave you from um, Sophocles? Sophocles' trilogy, the Oedipal, the Oedipal 
Rex trilogy, Oedipal Rex, Antigone, Oedipus at Colonus. You better go home and check your, I'm gonna, okay, oh good, okay. I mean, just that, that much, that, that many fewer colds I'm gonna heap on your mom's head. Um, remember in Antigone, in the middle work, that's um, Oedipus's daughter. She wants to bury her, remember, well, we did this play. Remember, um, Oedipus blinds himself when he discovers he killed his father and married his mother. Freud's going to make that everything about his psychology. God, God, God. Um, Oedipus um, was brother and father to his own children because he married his mother, right? So all of his relationships are incestuous. Socrates or Sophocles took that as the central thing. I think there's a fundamental truth to that. I certainly wouldn't go the way Freud did, but but um, Antigone loves her brothers. Remember, this is this is a product of an incestuous relationship. She loves her brothers, um, and she wants. So her brothers rebelled against Creon, the king, and would not allow. Um, her brother, one of her brothers, because the two brothers, these are Oedipus' two sons fighting for control in the city. So this Thebian pride in the family is profound. Just Sophocles knows that. He's, de he's dealing with depths of pride that most people don't want to deal with. And he's showing the effects of it. The two brothers are fighting against each other. One of them's killed. Um, maybe both of them, I can't, but she wanted to bury the one brother who opposed the city, and Creon the king would not allow it. And in her response to him, she, she appeals to natural law. She's saying the gods would allow this. The natural law, the divine law, would not prevent that. So that's long before, Mo or that's, that's outside of the Mosaic tradition. That's a pagan saying. That the love that a sister has for his brother is in conformity to a divine law. That's an expression of natural law. So what she's saying is, your political law is at odds with a natural law. It's natural for um, a sister to want to bury her brother. E even if he did wrong, she'd still want to bury him. So natural law is a, is a rich, complex notion, but, but it is connected. I mean, the Mosaic law, that's God's divine law handed down to us so we have some sense. But it was already something well understood by the pagans. You know this from the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, the Oedipal, all the stuff that we read. But the, the Homer and Virgil and all of them had this sense that there was this transcendent law. And when men ignored it, look at it, or, um, the Odyssey with Odysseus, all the suitors ignore the gods. Um, the Cyclops ignore the gods. The, the good figures in all of those works are in conformity to a higher law than they are. Do they have a sense of the Mosaic law? No. But it was in nature. It was there. That's why it's so important to read those. It's why John Paul and why Benedict, Benedict's argument is we cannot lose touch with that Hellenic influence. That's the center of his argument. To recover that because without it we don't have a sense of the Logos. Um, anyway, any other? Yeah, David, go ahead. So natural law is God's law? In nature, yes. Right? Yes. He created it. So right. There's an order there. Yeah. There's a logos. Yeah, right. Yes. 
there's this logos that the, the transcendent is visible at work somewhere in nature. All the, all the works that we did, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, every one of them assumes that. Not the way a Christian would, but it's there. Or we wouldn't have been moved by those works. I mean, they're really good works. I do a lot of gardening, and I'm in garden clubs, and I'm taking a lot of classes and have certifications. And, you know, there's just some things you cannot do. You're wasting your time planting this plant or putting it in this location. And if you put Bermuda grass seed down in February, the birds are going to get it. you got to wait till mid-May. And you, I just tell people all the time when I have to go to work with nature. Yes. It'll save you so much time. And it's very ordered, very, uh, it's, it's just amazing. Yeah. I'm shaking my head right now and laughing because I mean, you and Suzanne would have a lot to say to each other because she loves planting. If, if you've ever, I hope we'll all get together at our house for a meal pretty shortly. But she loves flowers. She makes arrangements. She plants a lot. And there are times when I'll go, why don't you plant here? And her response is, because there's not enough sun during the day, Robert. <laughs> you pay attention to the sun or the movement or whatever it is I'm not paying attention to. But I couldn't agree more. I, and I know. Suzanne was saying yes to everything you said right then, yeah. And the part of the problem today, I really believe, is that we don't have nature as a frame of reference anymore. We live in our heads and we create virtual worlds. So people don't look to nature. I mean, you're unusual, I think, in that way, Mary. Women have moved into the, re the media workforce. Their reference isn't nature. It's a virtual world. Men live in a virtual world. Who takes their frames of reference from nature anymore? Suzanne loves flowers. She plants. She, she, we don't have, we would never have an artificial flower in our, she will always get flowers and arrange them and she plants and um, yeah and it's less, I mean it's just not happening as much anymore. People live in um, virtual worlds. There's no, we can, why, why struggle with nature when you can have a robot serving you, you can have artificial flowers and you can do all these other things. You know, just... Yeah. Time, place, yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't mean to take... Um, anybody online? Before I get to Connie, if you can, sorry, I know you've been, but any of you online before we turn to Regensburg? Connie, can you, I know you, you had a thought, it was, you wrote that letter and I was really grateful. Can you share your story with the group here? You know, they stayed together, you know, for the whole narrative for 
Connie, don't stop there. You said you had a friend that you were talking with and... Yes, that you were talking with. Yeah. No, the good thing is that, uh, or the, in my mind, the bad thing is that it didn't because it would have been a good thing for you to, anyway, but um, Connie didn't finish that and I hope you don't mind. Her, she went on her letter to say that she has discussions with her sister and they get very fired up with each other, um, but, she, but she loves her sister dearly. I mean, she's not, she's not going to, I know, I think I can say for Connie, I think knowing her, she's not going to love her less. When we get to Chesterton, Chesterton's going to say at some per some point, he's just extraordinary. He's just he's the most he's the most reasonable, the best-hearted person I have ever encountered in my you know waking life in this world. He's going to say when somebody does some. I mean, Chesterton will not enable. I mean, we'll get to a chapter where he talks about the difference between optimism and pessimism, and say that optimism is. You know, you're not taking the stands that you should because you, you know, everything's cheery. Pessimism is you're taking stands the hard way, and and he's going to he's going to give an argument why neither why neither one of them is an adequate philosophy, an adequate view. And there's something wrong with both of them. But at one point he says the fact that somebody does something wrong isn't a reason for loving them less. It's a reason for loving them more. But he's not saying loving somebody more means you don't take stands because you're leaving that person helpless where you don't want to. So let me stop here. I, I hope it's clear that I'm not prescribing, I mean, I'm trying to identify how you deal with that in the individual case. Everybody's got to face that themselves. You know, what would be right in the particular circumstance? How do you, how do you take this thing and live it in a particular my own personal belief is that's, that's where the cross exists there. How will you meet it? What will you do? You know, do we run away from it? Do we stand it? How, how do we do it? I, I don't want to give, the reason for bringing these up is just to give you examples 
that we've we've encountered, and and I hope you I hope it's clear by now how difficult it had to be for everybody in every one of those cases. It's never easy. <clears throat> Unless anybody's got any final comments online or here, and did you? Sorry, sorry. Who? I need, I need Regensburg. John, there's something wrong with your audio. Sorry, did you, is your audio clear? Is it all the way up? It's hard to hear. Some of your, the audio is breaking up a little bit. It's hard to hear you.
Yeah, yeah, it's, it's never easy. Um, let me try to, if I can, thanks, John. Let me, just to wrap this up, I, I want I'm, I'm, to try to keep focus on what we're trying to do and how hard it is. Um, Connie, Connie, if I can go back to you for a second, and if I'm misquoting you or I'm missing something, please jump in on this, okay? In her note to me, she recalled the, um, um, the, the episode of the woman caught in adultery. That's a sexual sin. And the judges were bringing a law. Christ said he was not sin, throw the first stone. And then I want everybody to remember this because typically priests don't do this. What Christ did was, was ask something. I, I don't believe, I don't, this is, oh, I'm, going, I'm really going out on a limb here. I don't believe that any of those old men didn't go back to their profession. They went back to the law. But I can't believe they didn't go back, um, what's the word? Um, it's not embarrassed, but... Chasen. Shame, sorry, Doc? Chasen. Chasen, thanks. That's exactly the word I was looking for. I don't believe any of them didn't, didn't go back chastened. So I, I, my sense is we don't have any reason for knowing what this is my reading of it. I mean, we don't know, it's speculation. But my belief is they went back to practice law, but I think they would have gone back with a chastened spirit because none of them threw that stone, they walked away. So hold on to that, number one. Number two, while all the priests will make everything in the world of saying he forgave her, I, I, I cannot remember the last time a priest said, and he said to her, go and sin no more. He put her back under the law. He did, not, he did not ignore her, and he didn't say, you're forgiven, go away. I mean, how many priests make it easy because they're just saying, he forgave her, and we're left with that. That drives me nuts. Because what it's doing is leaving a whole religious Christian world helpless in the defense of sins. Christ did not, uh, he did not abrogate the law. He said it himself. I came to fulfill the law. Every, every iota of it. He left nothing unturned. He said, he's without sin, cast the first throne. They all walked away. Good. They should have been chastised. Because they were all, assumedly, too legalistic. It was the law. He's saying there's another spirit. And it's interesting that he's calling, he's calling forth on his father, who gave them that? The presumption should have been they should have loved God more than the law, because if they had, they would have brought more of the Father's Spirit. Christ keeps saying again and again, in me you see my Father. We're supposed to assume his Father was this bad guy in the Old Testament? I don't believe that for a moment. In me you see my Father. I'm here to do his will. If you didn't know him before him, you know him now. If you don't know me, you don't know him. If you don't know him, you don't know me. We cannot separate them. He makes clear his Father's love by his willingness to take a cross for us and ask us to do the same. That's our call. So to, to, to try to sort of shorten this and to go back to my examples, in every one, well, in most of those examples, from what I know about them, I, I, I mean, you can include Suzanne and me and you can include our friends, I'm thinking of the one couple that we were so close to. It was seven or eight years that his daughter lived with that guy. 
So what do you do after you draw a line? Suzanne's mother didn't break off from us. We saw her. But it was quite clear there was something she was not going to do. God, when I, when I spoke, <laughs> when I gave a eulogy, God, when I gave a eulogy at her funeral, I said she's one of the most Christ-like people I've ever met in my life, that she could have done that for us. Um, where's that going? That couple lived together, the couple I'm talking about, the, the children, for what, seven or eight years. What do you do after you, after you draw a line? You love them more than they did before. Do you remove the line? No. But meanwhile, meanwhile, you're on a cross and your faith is being tested. No? He had to wait seven years. I'm so glad for Connie's example of uh, Monica. I mean, show me an example of a more extraordinary woman. By, by the way, those of you who've done Shakespeare with me, I'm so, I mean, I'm sorry for the rest, but those of you who've done Winter's Tale, her, um, Leontes' decision cost the life of his son. It looks like it cost the life of his wife. She's imprisoned. Um, Perdita, or Paulina, loses her husband. And Paulina never... I mean, after scathing the men in that upper room, she says, promise me you'll not marry until I tell you. She doesn't hold on to a grudge. Hermione and Paulina, if Winter's Tale is on that, not on that list, you get busy. Because Winter's Tale is a must-read for everybody. Their extraordinary gap, so a long period elapsed after all those losses. How do you explain that period? Paulina, Paulina says to Leontes, the king, don't get married until I tell you. She's waiting for the oracle to be fulfilled. That's an act of faith. She's making herself obedient to a law. She's calling her king to obedience to that law. Well, it's 16 years. 16 years passed. So I've got no sympathy for people who are willing to, you know, to, we've, that's our faith, no? We're asked to live this law and love and keep our faith alive meanwhile. If we're going into it thinking, I don't have my way, it's not the way I want it right now, I mean, whatever we do, how, how much are we growing in our faith? So we're not supposed to give up the judgment or the law, but we are supposed to bring to it a faith and a cross with the understanding, our faith, that we will grow in it. It's partly for us. So I hope I made this clear. That with respect to our sexual nature and love, since that's our last issue in Fide Orantio, all these intellectual disorders, there's also this, this one that touches more closely on our will, how we love, what we do. Um, that both of these men, both of these folks, are calling us to a better use of our powers of reason with the understanding that we bring that reason in line with our faith and, the, and our call by Christ to love the way he does. I think I've said that clearly. Yeah? Let me stop. Is, yeah? Can you speak up? Speak up. 
John Paul II was shot. Right. Okay. Right. And and then you know how he forgave that person. Right. You know, in other words, he like, hate the sin, not the sinner. And of course, he forgave him. And then later on, that guy did come. Later on, after Pope John Paul died, he's it's a beautiful story. Yeah. He came around. Yeah. But that is another example yeah. of how he fully showed um, his love that is so selfish. Yeah. Selfless. Yeah. Yeah, and what I don't want, like, you guys, give you, if you didn't have a reason to leave these classes before, you're certainly getting more and more one. What I love about that example that I don't hear anything said about, he visited that man in jail. He didn't release him. The answer to a murderer is, you don't put him back out on the street. He committed a crime. Your love does not mean absolving that law. That is not love. Whatever else it is, it's not love. John, what I love about that, that people don't, he visited him in jail. That man was not released. But he went to him in his cell and forgave him. I, there's not a question in my mind he forgave that man. Not a question. But that man was also serving a sentence. It's just another example of bringing law and love together. That's such a hard thing to do. And I, the words, I, if I can, I want to leave this. It may require that any, any of us, some of us, may have to undergo a period, a real trial of faith. It may take a long time for something to happen. I don't know how long Monica kept, kept Augustine in her prayers or her husband, but imagine that, you know. So our faith is not that we're depraved or corrupt. Our faith is natural love is good. It's a good thing, but we're called to a cross to, to make law, God's law, real to not make it something it's not, because the Jews did that over and over and over again. They made that law awful. We're asked to obey God's law. When the, when the disciples came out of the temple, they were glad. They said, Peter said, it's better for us to obey God's law than men's. So it's really important for us to get straight on what God's law is, not the things that we want to hold in our heads. Are we really following God's law? Do we know it? Are we taking the pains to do it? Are we living it in charity, bringing a love to what we do? That's My contention is that's a cross. Be glad. It's hard. I mean, that must sound tough. Be glad. That's our call. Any strength we can take from each other, be glad for it. Anyway, sorry. Did somebody... Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going to yeah. Exactly. Well, take it, say it. Yeah. There are many people in Boy. our society who want to show mercy and think that in doing that you don't have to have any kind of spirit that's right. Well, lots of, I mean, lots of criminals have been released. I mean, it's a long line, litany of examples, but lots of them. And I think the presumption is the people who do that are showing mercy, but that's not a mercy. That's not a mercy. And call it what you want, it's not a mercy. It's, what they're doing is using their heads, if you watch them, they're, they're giving 
explanations according to an ideology that they have that the reason this guy committed the crime is there's sin is endemic he's not at, flame, at fault, the environment, the parent, whatever it is, he's not that's not a mercy. God didn't show mercy like that. He, he just didn't let criminal Christ all the way in his parables, if you start reading the parables, I mean, go through all the parables in Matthew. We'll get to them. And but he's... What we've both said is just two ends, neither one of which good. would be good without yeah. the other side. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's Portia, if you remember Merchant of Eden. Both of those are extremes and they're mirror reversals. One is the mirror reversal of the other. Yeah. Okay, let's stop, because I, um, if it's okay to stop. We've, we, it seems to me we've just hit the nerve. I mean, for the last three weeks we've been sitting on a nerve, and I know it's difficult, and I, and I, and I say this knowing that, um, um, that some of us experience, have experienced this really deeply, and I know it carries wounds, so I just want to thank you all for whatever whatever way you've made a place for this because it, it, I mean these are the toughest things of our time the things that we've been looking at so I'm grateful for the your willingness and your goodness so let me stop okay Regensburg okay we go to Regensburg okay I'm gonna deal this is here I go again God. I'm gonna try to go to if I can, oh, God, the longer I stand there, the stiffer I get. You hear me okay, yeah. Um, I'm going to go to one of the, I'm going to try to go to the touchiest spot to see if I can clear this up right at the outset. A couple of things up front on Regensburg Address. One is that this is not an encyclical, you know it, it's an address. And it's different from anything else that we've read or will read. It's closer to C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man because Lewis is speaking as a teacher and he's going he's to look directly at education in Abolition of Man. But you're not going to, you're going to be aware that there's an educational background to it, but I don't think you're going to feel a teacher, you're going to feel a man making an argument. But in Regensburg Address, Pope Benedict does everything he can to um, make explicit the context. He's speaking before an academic audience and he's very aware in two theology schools. I don't know what they are. I've asked people and they haven't been able to help me. I'm assuming one's Catholic, one's Protestant. I may be wrong in that, I don't know. But he's, he's speaking before two schools and he's honoring a time that he's aware has passed. Because when he was there in the 50s, there was a sense that the whole university would meet on these colloquial days and have a discussion in which all of the professors from every one of their disciplines gathered, prepared to speak to a whole faculty from the point of view of their difficult, from their discipline, and still be understood so that other teachers could respond to them. That's a great thing. I mean, stop and think about it. Um, and I'll give you, I'll give you an example of my own. Um, I had been in a graduate school, I'm not going to name it, and had a proposal for my doctorate and the head of the English department, when I told him about it, had nothing but scorn for what I was doing. He said, you don't belong in literature, you belong in politics or history. There's no way I was going to be a political 
politics major or historian, none. You know my love of literature. And I went to talk with one of the teachers and he said, you should have gone to UD. I went to the library and I looked at the UD catalog, University of Dallas. I was stunned, absolutely stunned. I'm, I'm not an academic, I didn't grow up with that background. I'm entering into a new world with all of this happening to me and Suzanne. And I applied to the PhD program there and was accepted with a scholarship. Stunned me. I went to talk with a woman. We had just spent, I just, we'd spent a year in Chicago, um, Urbana, Illinois, Illinois, at a fellowship, and I decided to go back for the doctorate. I was just, my life was changing. I didn't grow up this way, and so I wanted to go back to a doctorate. I went to this school in Southern California and then met this wall and went to talk to this man who was a really important figure in the politics department. He said, you should have gone to UD. I applied, was accepted. I went out to interview and I met with Louise Cowan, who was the dissertation, or the head of the English department at that time. We, we met each other and I told her what my, what my interest in the dissertation was and she said they had just finished a year-long colloquia involving all the faculty, each person speaking from his own discipline on the city so that they had something in common. And she had nothing but praise for what I was doing. She was encouraging. It said, good for you. I called Suzanne that night, and I, I, I've always been something of an outsider when we met at Berkeley in our whole life. Um, I called her and I said, these are honest, I said, um, I, I said, I felt like I was coming home. It was a, <laughs> I'm going to get, it was the first time in my life that I'd ever felt that kind of receptivity on the part of something when I thought there was something important. And these people at this other college were looking at me with scorn and contempt and saying, you don't belong in English. And Louise had nothing but good to say, and she said it in the context of this larger, this is a Catholic university, they'd had a colloquium. Here's where I want to go. You go to a university today and ask yourself how many of those teachers, this universe, university, comes from the word universe. Unity. It implies there's a wholeness, there's a unity to whatever's going on in that universe. Yeah? Or you wouldn't call it a university. I hope everybody, I mean this stuff is so obvious and nobody thinks about it. Their understanding was there's a university. There, there, that wasn't the word. There was a logos they all had in common. This is Benedict. They could talk with each other because there was an assumption that reason would have something to say to reason in another field. And there's even that one guy who says he doesn't understand why these people are talking about God because God doesn't exist. And Benedict's response is he belongs there because reason should raise that question. It was a setting in which everybody could talk with each other because it was understood they had reason in common. Today, go to a university and ask how many times they have colloquia involving all the faculty. Or ask anybody in a specialization whether he thinks he can communicate with somebody in another specialization because their specializations will divide them. It will isolate them. There's no longer a whole, you're not talking to each other, you're in your own specialization, walled in, no communion, no communication goes on. You do your work in your specialty, you publish, you get recognized. What are the four goods that Thomas talks about? Power, wealth, pleasure, recognition. You publish, get recognition, you're going to be on the faculty, you get paid 
$100,000 a year and you're settled. Okay. Benedict's looking back, so the first thing, he's writing in an educational context. He's looking back at the 1950s when he was teaching when they had these days. He identifies them, remember, he says in the first page, making possible a genuine experience of universitas, that is a university. Once a semester there was a dies academicus, an academic day. Everybody would get together to talk because they had a whole in common. Go down a few lines. It was, it was clear that by inquiring about the reasonableness of faith, they too carried out a work which is necessarily part of the whole of the Universitas Scientiarium, even if not everyone could share the faith which theologian seeks to correlate with reason as a whole. This profound sense of coherence within the universe of reason was not troubled even when it was once reported that a colleague had said there was something odd about our university. It had two faculties devoted to something that did not exist. That even in the face of such radical skepticism, it's still necessary and reasonable to raise the question of God through the use of reason. Can you imagine, I mean, we were just talking about this. Can you imagine a more reasonable man or a more charitable one? Is he going to go in there and say, this guy, kick him out? He doesn't believe in God? Because one of the appropriate responses of reason is, is there a God? Prove it. Are you all following? Am I going to? So in the same way that we're talking about love, when somebody doesn't love, is that a, a, a justification for conking that guy in the head and saying, get out? No, but it doesn't mean you don't do anything. It, the question is, how do we set limits? How do we obey a law? What do we do? Here, there's a, a shared understanding of a logos, a reason. So the first thing to be clear about is this is a university context and he's looking back at something lost right now because that sense of a whole, a shared logos is gone. And one of the effects of the disappearance of that is education is suffering. So I just, we need to be up really clear about what's going on here. Education is right now is not doing well. People do not talk with each other. They talk past each other because there's no assumption, no shared assumption of a shared whole or a shared locus of knowledge. That's one. Two, I'm going to take on what is, I think, touchier. And I'm going to do this just in two minutes because I'm trying to be better at holding the times. And you all know that I'm not good at it, so. Um, here's the second thing. If you followed this um, address, and I'm assuming most of you haven't, if you follow it, you'll know that the response to Benedict was dark. Catholics were critical of him. Lots of Catholics were critical of him anyway because they thought, they thought he was too academic. I thought he was brilliant and brave. He just was a remarkable pope. But lots of Catholics were upset um, and for, I'll come to the reason. The Islamic world was outraged, simply outraged with him. That they saw him as um, doing something that was provocative and unnecessary. If you know the line, um, he, you know that he uses that dialogue between the emperor and um, a very scholarly uh, Muslim um, when, um, sorry, 
when Constantinople was under siege and in that dialogue the emperor asks the Muslim whether, this is really interesting, whether Muhammad brought anything new into existence because up until that time according to the difference between Christianity and Islam there were three ways. Now I want to I go back for a minute. Those of you who've been doing this for a while know that according to the ancient world there were a number of ways. The way I'm going to identify it. The way of Athens, the way of Rome, the way of Jerusalem. Okay? The Greek way, the Roman way, the Davidic way. Those were the ways. Okay? And then Christianity. Gut nations were governed by those ways. Yeah? Athens. One of the one of the ancient fathers said, What does Athens have to do with Christianity? Because Athens was the center of the intellectual, the development of the intellectual of our mind. That's where our the philosophy originates. The way of Athens, the way of Rome, the Davidic way, the way of David, and then Christ. Here he's saying there's three ways. That according to these ways, people follow their lives. The Islam is claiming these three ways. The Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Quran. Those are the three ways he's identifying on the edge of the modern world. Those three ways. And the emperor is saying, what new did Muhammad bring into the world? Because there's the Old Testament and New Testament. And he's making the claim that what the Quran did was introduce an element that is violent. So he's saying, Muhammad didn't bring anything new. What was new was contrary to the tradition that it had existed through the Old Testament, up through the New Testament, and the world. Okay, now I just want to I want to go back to this because um, in the second page towards the top, the emperor or um, sorry Benedict is describing what happened and he says, without descending into details such as the difference in treatment according to those who have the book and the infidels. That is, when the Quran mentions infidels, is it speaking about everybody who doesn't share, but that doesn't go by the book? So anybody who doesn't go by the book is an infidel? Because if that's true, you know that in the Quran, if you've read the passages, there are passages endorsing a holy war to kill the infidels. He addresses his interlocutor with a startling brusqueness, a brusqueness that we find unacceptable on the central question about the relationship between religion and violence in general. Benedict is doing everything he can to make it clear that um, he does not want to bring a spirit of brusqueness to what he's doing. He thought that the emperor was too brusque, not lacking in courtesy. So here's, here's, the, here's the difficulty, and I want to get to it right now. Lots of people were critical of Benedict because he introduced this problem dealing with the differences between Christianity and Islam. And I want to say this in defense of Benedict right now. What Benedict is doing in a way that to my mind is remarkable because he brings a clarity of mind, first of all, that's profound and something original because he's, what he's dealing with is what he's calling the de-Hellenization of the West. That we've lost contact with our roots. We've been going over this since we met. The Iliad, the Odyssey, 
Sophocles, Aeschylus, Plato, Aristotle. We did it with Pope John because Pope John says emphatically we cannot lose touch with that Greco-Roman world because it's that world that gave us a sense of universals. If we lose the sense of universals, we're going to be stuck in particular cultures. Christianity is dead. Okay? So he's addressing an intellectual problem, an educational problem. He's addressing a problem of how we use our minds. So on the surface, it seems like it's a purely intellectual problem. We've lost a sense of this Greek heritage, philosophy. But what he's showing is the implications of that are far more profound because they go to matters of war. That there's a fundamental difference between Christianity and Islam. And so even though the, the Islamic world was really upset with him and some Christians, he's touching on one of the most profound matters of the modern world. It's the place of Islam and its ideology and the way it approaches reality and how radically different it is from Christianity and the way that it gets played out in our life. You can see elements of um, Islam. It was present in Obama. Or Obama. It's present in um, the, the tendency of people to, to universalize the world and say Christianity should be everybody. We should spread the world. All of us should be good. There should be no... America shouldn't have a standing place in the world. We have to make everybody equal. It's a sort of socialistic sense of the world that we all... We'll have a better world if we're all equal and, and we all share these same beliefs. There's nothing in Islam that would allow that. If you've looked at the Quran, there's nothing in Christianity that would allow that. It, um, so people who take that position are not going to be very open to Christianity. They're going to have very few things, good things to say about it. Some of them are going to have difficulties with Islam. My reason for taking a minute with this is just keep in mind those two aspects of this address. He's dealing with an academic issue with how we think. His argument is education is failing because we've lost a sense of the logos. If there isn't a logos in the world, how do we expect to communicate with each other? If there's nothing we have in common, we will be talking past each other. That's one. The second is there's a deeper issue because um, Islam and fundamentalist Christianity do not believe in a Logos. Go back to that. The fundamentalist, the Protestant world by and large believes that the consequences of the fall were complete. Nature is depraved. You cannot trust it. There is no Logos there. And I will take it a step farther. Most Catholics being raised in the South step into that. They don't even know that they're behaving like Protestants because they're approaching the world as if we live in depravity and there's no logos. One of the things you've been hearing me insist on for all the years that I've been doing this is this thing of a, no, a logos. Benedict is saying, if, if there is no logos, we have no means by which to communicate with each other. So those are two central points just to keep in mind. Okay, what I'd like to do next week is cover the whole thing. I've given you an outline, it gives you a structure so it should be easy to follow. I'd like to do the whole of Regensburg. It's very short so we should be able to do it. Those are the two central points I think. Um, I want to look at it in detail the way we do. 
And then what I'd like to do is take two weeks off. We'll take a break. Um, I need it. <laughs> um, um, we'll take a break. Um, and my encouragement for you guys would be take those two weeks to read Abolition of Man and start orthodoxy. You'll, you'll I think I told you my wife's response, didn't I, when I read Orthodoxy and I was so over, and so taken by it, I asked, yeah, I asked her to read it. Her response to me when she got chapter into it, or to, she threw it at me. Um, it's, I was younger and I had faster reflexes and I could duck better than I do now. Um, I loved it. It's funny, it's humorous. It, he's the most, the, I think he's the brightest man of the 20th century. He's, he's an extraordinary person. He's a journalist, so he's writing to ordinary people, but he also has a profound mind. So some people find him easy, some people find him difficult. You know, just be patient, work with the difficulties. You're, you're, you're in the hands of a really deep mind, trying, trying to make everything ordinary. So two weeks off, okay? Next week we'll meet, we'll finish Regensburg Address, and then for two weeks, you can be free of me. You don't have to put up with me for two weeks. Okay? Um, anybody? Bob, did you have something? Go ahead. I think also what you're talking about here, and we're experiencing the United States right now, we don't have a local. It used to be we the people. Now it's Democrats and Republicans. Well, I'm so glad. So yeah. So they're both going in different directions. There's no talk about what we need. It's what I want, what I want. I'm so grateful for that, Bob, honestly. Go, go, just take for a second, I'm sorry, because I, but his, he's right, he's right, he's spot on. The principle of the Declaration of Independence, Constitution, I'm so glad for you, Bob. We the people of the United States, okay? Declaration, um, um, the laws of nature, the laws of nature and of nature's God. The, the principle of the Declaration of Independence is that we share these laws, they're in nature. And it's by virtue of them that we're going to break from England and try to do something that had never been done before. But it was based on a belief that all men are created equal under God. It doesn't mean they all are going to arrive at the same equality. We've gone through that argument. That isn't what it's saying. But it does say no class barriers, not English, not French, aristocratic, you know, India, if you're born into a higher class. All of those things don't apply. We're going to do something that's never been done before. The assumption of it, thank you, Robert. The assumption of it was the presence of a logo. They never used that word, they never would, but it was there. If we don't have that logos, the ship is already breaking apart underneath us right now as we go, and we're doing nothing to hold it together. We used to have that, because even the corporations and everything used to do it for the best of the country. Yeah. Yeah. How much more money can I make? Yeah. 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 You know, I, you don't want to get me started here. We don't, you don't, but hold on. You really don't. I, I think I told you before, on uh, 4th of July in our home, we do readings. We spend a couple of hours reading. We go through the Declaration, Constitution, some amendments, Gettysburg Address, the Lincoln Second Arc. I mean, we go through major readings. It gets, uh, there's not going to be a 4th of July when we don't do that. Um, before, if, if, hold on, just wait, give me 30 seconds, sorry, hold on. Suzanne, behave. 30 seconds, I promise.
we used to be Democrats and Republicans under one God. So even though we were divided, Republican Democrats, we were under one God. That's not the way the parties are today. And it's, it's, it's making the problems worse. So no matter, I hope everybody's hearing, no matter how bad they were before, how, met, how much we would fight against each other, Republicans and Democrats, we still had a common belief. We don't any longer. If, if we don't do something to recover that sense of a shared inheritance, what we set out to prove, America set out to do something that had never, it, in the Declaration of Independence, a proposition. Proposition is something to be proved. That's the language of the Declaration. If we don't do something, we're going to lose that proposition. We're not going to prove it. And we're going to decline into all the things we wanted to avoid by trying to do, create this you know, new democracy. So let me stop. You guys have a good week. <laughs> see, you, see you next week.